Welcome to episode 8 of Through the Keyhole. I'm your humble host, Jeremy Key. On this episode of The Keyhole, I had the distinct pleasure to talk to Dr. David Devil. Dr. Devil is the editor or co-editor of several journals focused on Catholic thought and culture, co-director of the Terence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy, visiting assistant professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, and with Liz Kelly, co-hosts the Deep Down Things podcast a link to which can be found in the description for this episode. He is a past winner of the Acton Institute's Novak Award and the Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute. His public and popular writings have appeared in Catholic World Report, Christian Century, City Journal, Commonweal, First Things, Minneapolis Star Tribune, The Wall Street Journal, and The Imaginative Conservative, where he is also a senior contributor and where I have also published essays. With Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, he recently co-edited Solzhenitsyn in American Culture, The Russian Soul of the West, and it's about this book that we will be talking today, specifically about the worldview of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, how he may have been a prophet in the Old Testament sense, and how he so clearly saw what so many are only now coming to see for themselves. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, like it on YouTube, and leave a review wherever you found me. Helps me reach a wider audience, you see. Find me on Twitter at The Keyhole, spelled K-E-E. Here's my interview with Dr. David Devil. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, everybody. Welcome back to Through the Keyhole. As always, I'm your host, Jeremy Key, and I am joined today by a very special guest. His name is Dr. David Devil, and he is... Um, well, I won't, I won't give too much information about him. I'd rather it come from him. But he and I are going to be talking a lot today about a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, uh, who, is, who is enshrined in a, a certain segment of the culture, but I believe needs to be more widely known. Um, so before we get into that, David, welcome on my show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here. So the way I like to do these things is uh, I like to just kind of get to know my guest a little bit first. So I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do and why you do it. Yeah. Well, I grew up in northern Indiana, Bremen, Indiana, just south of South Bend. Many people will know Notre Dame from sure. football. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I went to, to school, uh, local high school. I met my first social student in high school uh, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich for a high school assignment and wrote a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. um, I then went on to Calvin College, now Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, because I was my family uh, were members of the Christian Reform Church. Uh, we had started going to that church when I was a, a child, and Calvin was the denominational college. Um, there I studied philosophy and literature, uh, and uh, what my I turned out to be my mentor was the guy that I took first for a course on John Milton, and his name was Edward Erickson uh, Jr. Yeah. And uh, Ed Erickson was one of the premier American scholars of Solzhenitsyn, and he was the one who, he had several, he had two books at the time that he'd written on Solzhenitsyn, and he had also uh, proposed to the great man himself uh, uh, to, pr to pr produce a one-volume version of the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn's great nonfiction um, but literary work of exploration about the great uh, prison system of the Soviets and all of the, the terrors that went on in it. Uh, the whole series is about, you know, 2,000 pages or so, and 
uh, Erickson, having taught American students, proposed to Solzhenitsyn that uh, he should uh, do a, a sort of a one volume version. And Solzhenitsyn was willing to do that and worked on it with him. Mm -hmm. uh, so I studied with Ed. I never took a course on Solzhenitsyn. I took Dostoevsky with him as well. Um, but uh, but I, Ed was a great, a great mentor and friend. I ended up after Calvin going to Fordham University in the Bronx, uh, where I studied uh, uh, historical theology. Uh, and I got a PhD in historical theology there. Uh, I was, you know, perhaps a typical graduate student. I finished my work and then I got married. I moved to, to Minnesota where my, my wife uh, was teaching philosophy here. And it took me a little while, but I wrote on John Henry Newman, the 19th century uh, theologian and philosopher and, and novelist and poet and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I've been in the Twin Cities here for about 20 years now, um, and I've been teaching at the University of St. Thomas in several different departments uh, at, at, at the St. Paul Seminary, training Catholic priests. Uh, also in uh, the theology department at the university, but most of the time I've been in the Catholic studies department, which is an uh, interdisciplinary integral studies program looking at pretty much everything through the, the lens of Catholic thought and culture. Hmm. Uh, you might call it a kind of a Catholic worldview program. So I've been, I've been doing that uh, since I've been here. And I, over the last six years, I've been the editor of a quarterly journal, I had been working on it as an associate editor for many years, but it's called Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And we produce a, a, a quarterly, four issues a year um, on all different topics uh, with relevance uh, to Catholic faith, thought and culture. Uh, but we have Orthodox authors and Protestant authors as well. Mm -hmm. And then for the last couple of years, I've been the co-director of an institute that our Center for Catholic Studies runs with the University of St. Thomas School of Law. It's called the Terrence J. Murphy Institute for Catholic Thought, Law, and Public Policy. And it's designed to create outward-facing events, uh, you know, for the public to think about, think about uh, the practice of law and public policy and government in the light of, of the most important concerns and in the light of uh, Christian faith. Uh, so I've been doing that. I got into Solzhenitsyn again, if you if you will, a number of years ago when I started teaching a bit of Solzhenitsyn, either one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich or uh, selected stories uh, that from, from his collections uh, to students in a course we have called The Search for Happiness in the Catholic Tradition. Mm -hmm. And I usually used his stories or one day in the life uh, in a section that I called uh, Happiness Under Pressure. Um, how would one achieve happiness in the in the most dire prospects possible. Well, we get we get some hints at that in Solzhenitsyn's depictions of happiness in the Gulag. Hmm. Uh, so when Ed Erickson, my, my mentor, died a few years ago, I'd been teaching a little bit. Uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson, who was then at John Brown University, is now the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, who had also been mentored by Ed. Uh, we talked and we decided we wanted to do something to honor Ed Erickson. And we thought there could be no better project than something uh, combining Russian literature and specifically Solzhenitsyn and what, uh, what that literature and what Solzhenitsyn can do uh, to help Americans think about questions of uh, literary importance, of social importance, of religious importance, and of political importance. And so what we, what we put together was a collection of uh, almost two 
dozen essays uh, on those topics uh, that was published by Notre Dame Press last year, Social Needs in American Culture. Mm-hmm. So thanks for uh, thanks for putting that up there. Of course, yeah, and I'll uh, I'll link a, I'll, I'll put a link to the to the book in the description for the episode. So there's a lot there. Um, there's a whole lot there that I'd like to dig into, and there's no way that I'm going to get to it all. But before I get into all that. I want to kind of take a slight detour, but I think that it'll circle back in a roundabout way. So you said that growing up, you were you were raised in what Christian tradition, did you say? Uh, it was the, the, the Calvinist tradition. Okay. Uh, my parents were sort of garden variety of American evangelicals. My dad went to Moody Bible Institute. Okay. Uh, my mom was in a Baptist group that might be more associated with um, Cedarville College or Cedarville University as it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was a child, we started going to a Calvinist church, uh, the Christian Reformed Church, which was uh, a Dutch Reformed denomination that was founded uh, by Dutch immigrants in the uh, mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. And it's most famous for Calvin College, I think, um, as well as its, uh, you know, many of its scholars played a role in one of the most popular uh, Protestant Bible translations out there, the New International Version. Right, right. So so the reason I ask that is because uh, you brought up John Henry Newman. And, you know, a- anyone who is familiar with Newman is familiar with his, uh, what is it, Doctrines of the Christian Faith? Is that? Yeah, the essay on the development of doctrine. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the the story behind that is that he wrote it he wrote it with one intention, but in the process of writing it, he basically argued himself into Catholicism. And so I think I'm getting those, I think I'm getting those facts right. And so I was, I'm curious, how did you come to Catholicism or did you? Cause you, you, yeah. You, okay. I did. And I mean, it, you know, one way of describing it is the first steps were in some ways uh, literary. It was during that high school period where I was reading um, authors like Solzhenitsyn, and and, um, and I started reading a little bit of Dostoevsky as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I was reading other authors uh, like Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy. I started reading, yeah. um, and of course, you know, even before that, C.S. Lewis had introduced me to J.R.R. Tolkien, right. and then I'd read a little bit of Chesterton. So all of that was in the background for me, and then when I was in college. Uh, some of the denominational issues in the Christian Reformed Church uh, were about questions uh, that could not easily be solved, or at least not it were not apparently able to be solved simply by an appeal t- to Scripture. And what what I started asking questions were were what you know what governs our our reading of Scripture as Christians. If you're a Christian, you know you can say I just looked to Scripture, but you're looking at it with a sort of a frame of reference. Right. And it seemed to me that there were, there were a number of different frames of reference and they weren't all utterly incompatible, Mm -hmm. uh, but there were, there were better, better lenses or ones that were more capable of, uh, of taking in all of scripture and making an account of it and providing a vision of the faith. And I, Mm -hmm. I, I guess I ended up sort of thinking, well, it's either going to be Eastern Orthodoxy or, or Catholicism. And, uh, I decided, I think, with prayer and uh, study, that uh, that God was telling me that that I should become a Catholic because it had that broadest lens. So, sure. yeah, you know the the reason I ask is um, the reason I ask is because when I discovered Solzhenitsyn, I guess you could say my 
my Solzhenitsyn testimony. Um, I discovered Solzhenitsyn around the time that I began opening my own mind to Catholicism. I was raised, born and raised into a Southern Baptist family. I was baptized as, as a Southern Baptist, but it, that I, I always felt, you know, kind of like, kind of like what you were saying. I always felt like there were things like we were narrowing our scope of, of the, the Christian thing. Um, you know, I, I always wondered, for instance, why we never talked about like angels or miracles and what's the deal with saints and, and, you know, why don't we talk about Mary? Like all these things, they just seemed like, well, like we should be talking about them. And I never really got a satisfying answer. So I always just kind of went about my own business and just kind of regarded it as like, well, they seem important. So I'm, I'm not going to join in the bashing or anything. And so that, you know, that, that openness to it had, had always kind of been there. And so fast forward to 2012, 2013, uh, I had been out. Of, I had graduated college a couple of years prior, and I was working in public policy in Austin. Um, I was an office administrator, but I, I moonlit as a uh, higher education researcher and, and writer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just kind of like my 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 intellectual uh, my intellectual flowering, I guess you could say. And so I was I was reading all these new people, these new ideas, and a friend of mine introduced me to Solzhenitsyn and it was the Harvard address of all things like the it, whenever whenever someone has asked me like well how how do you how would you suggest someone get into Solzhenitsyn I always say the Harvard address because it's like that was hook line and sinker for me and so I read it and it just you know from the very first paragraph uh, the truth is seldom pleasant it's almost invariably bitter is like okay, so we're in for it now. But the, the you know, as as I got deeper into Solzhenitsyn, granted he was Orthodox, not Catholic, but as I got deeper into Solzhenitsyn, I was struck by by how drenched in his faith his work was, but not in the way that I had been brought up to to integrate one's faith into their their public life or anything um you know he can he can talk so profoundly about uh the christian idea broadly speaking without mentioning like but it says in the bible like you know matthew three twenty or whatever like he does it in such a a relatable and relevant way and not in a uh for lack of a better term, a partisan way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that immediately, like that, that spoke to me on a very deep level and, and, you know, not just the Harvard address, but, you know, pretty much everything he wrote um, had that aspect of it. So that's, that's why I ask, um, because I, I think it's interesting that, that so many people who admire and respect and write about and think about Solzhenitsyn also place a certain high priority on faith in their own lives. And I think that that's an aspect, Mm -hmm. you know, I know, uh, I know that Dr. Dr. Hooten Wilson, um, I know that she's very, uh, you know, she's working on several projects right now. I think one of them is, is related to, to how to read as a Christian. Like it's, it's a, it's a very, I've yet to meet 
more than maybe two or three uh, strictly secular individuals who hold Solzhenitsyn in such high esteem as as believers. Um, So maybe we could start there. Um, So what so what role like what role do you see Solzhenitsyn's faith kind of playing in his in in his work whether it's the Harvard address maybe Gulag you know because that's a very spiritual book uh, when mm-hmm. you really dig into it so talk to us a little bit about Solzhenitsyn and and his faith spirituality things like that yeah. Well, I think a lot of people don't realize, but, uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918, the year of the revolution. And although his his mother was a well-educated uh, woman who was a religious believer, uh, he, like many young people, of course, were taken, their faith was taken from them, essentially. Uh, and he was, he thought of himself as a good Marxist-Leninist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, he spent time studying uh, sciences at Moscow State University and some some literature and philosophy through uh, through our kind of Institute of Philosophy through correspondence courses, mm-hmm. and then of course World War II came up and he was a captain in an artillery unit, and uh, he was highly de- decorated. But he was starting to realize that there were problems with the way the Soviet Union was run, and he didn't think of himself as you know as a, as a renegade, but he just thought they're not doing this Marxist Leninist thing wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in letters to a, to a childhood friend, uh, he engaged in criticism uh, and suggested reforms of the Soviet state, as well as even making jokes about uh, Joseph Stalin, the man of steel, the, you know, the one who was so brutal. So he mm-hmm. was, he was imprisoned for that. And it was only when he got into prison uh, into the Gulag system Mm-hmm. Uh, that he began to 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 rethink some of his basic convictions, and you know in the Gulag Archipelago, it's, it's very clear that he does not. He, this is a process that he had to go through. When he arrives in the prison system, he's still not thinking about God. Um, he's still thinking, well, you know, we've got to make this thing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he begins to encounter prisoners who uh, first convince him that his critique of the Soviet system was not deep enough. It had to go much deeper than simply they're doing it wrong. You know, they they have a fundamentally wrong view. And eventually he starts to discover, especially in those believers who are in prison, not all of them Orthodox, some of them Ukrainian Catholics, some of them, um, some of them Baptists, uh, the famous character in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, Alyosha the Baptist. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the one who really kind of s- speaks for uh, the Christian tradition, yeah. but also even some Jews, uh, religious Jews in the gulags. He starts to realize a, a couple of truths. Number one, there's justice in the world. And that may sound sort of dumb, but, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Soviet, in the Marxist-Leninist idea, there is no such thing as a justice that judges the state. Mm-hmm. You know, the state's interests are above all. And he says in there that, you know, he discovered this sort of keystone of the universe, which is justice. Mm-hmm. And he realized that there was a God behind that justice. Um, and then he begins to reconsider and he begins to rediscover his faith. And it starts to come out almost immediately. Uh in, in the things that he's doing. And you can see that in the Gulag Archipelago, but also in the fiction. Um, 
again, as you note, he's not, he doesn't have kind of, ser- you know, sermons like you might see in a, in a, in a evangelical novel. You know, I'm teaching a course right now with students on apocalyptic depictions in literature. We, mm-hmm. we read uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' famous Left Behind, the dispensationalist novel. And, you know, yeah. you know a novel like that, uh, a work of, you know, a kind of work of Christian fiction um, actually has a lot of preaching in it. Yeah. I don't think Solzhenitsyn usually aimed it at that, at, at, in that way. Uh, instead, he, he embedded it in dialogue quite mm-hmm. often. And uh, it's even in his, even in his sort of speaking in his own voice and in his memoirs and his, his uh, speeches, he very rarely gives a kind of theological take on, it. although he did once uh, when he won the Templeton Prize and gave the Templeton Address, mm-hmm. uh, and he he very self consciously thought that he had to speak in a much more straightforward religious vein. Hmm. Uh, but in a, most of his work, as you say, it's embedded in everything that he's doing, and mm-hmm. he will put it into dialogue if it's a if it's a more of a literary work, uh, or if it's his memoirs. Uh, it often comes out in uh, in a sort of very quick prayers that that interject into things that that indicate how he thinks about God as not only a God of justice, uh, but the God behind his conscience, and also, I'd say most importantly, a, a God of providence. Um, his he wrote some short poems uh, in the 1950s in when he was still in the camps, and and uh, one of them is uh, called Akathistus. Uh, which is a reference to a kind of prayer in the Russian Orthodox Church. It was in the the medieval Catholic Church as well, although they were kind of kind of left behind mm-hmm. uh, to use that phrase again in a different way. Sure, uh, but it reflects on uh, God's providence being with him always, even in those days when he had rejected faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he does have some of those specific places where he will speak directly, but he chooses to, uh, I think, embed it in ways that are that are not they don't hit you over the head right in part because in especially in the fiction and the literary explorations um you know he practices in that tradition of of what the scholars call the polyphonic novel that there there are many sounds many voices coming Mm -hmm. together yeah yeah and you know it i think that's a really uh important point um talking about the way in which uh the way in which he conveys these Christian ideals, they're not, they're not in the form of sermons, they're in the form of stories. Uh, um, you know, there's, there's a, one of my favorite essays uh, from the book that you and Dr. Wilson co-edited um, was Kindred Spirits, uh, written, of course, by Joseph Pierce, of all people, yeah. who, who uh, occupies, occupies several areas of interest of mine. Not only is he uh, a Solzhenitsyn uh, biographer and scholar, but he's also a Tolkien um, scholar of, you know, a, a huge Tolkien fan. And so I was very interested to read that essay. And there is a considerable bit of the essay in which uh, Pierce, you know, he went to go, he actually got to visit with Solzhenitsyn and yeah. he got to talking to, to, to the man about Tolkien and similarities in their approach and I'd like to, I'd like to read just a little bit uh, from that essay, just a little short passage. Um, let's see here. Uh, 
so let's see here. Absolutely, absolutely, Solzhenitsyn whispered, uh, quoting, uh, quoting Tolkien here. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth, and more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste and foretaste of which alone uh, can what you seek in your earthly relationships be maintained or take on the complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. Solzhenitsyn responds, is that Tolkien? Eyes widening in surprise. Yes, again, correct. Um, Solzhenitsyn goes on to explain, long periods of well-being and comfort are in general dangerous to all. After such prolonged periods, weak souls become incapable of weathering any kind of trial. They are afraid of it. But strong souls in such periods are still able to mobilize and to show themselves and to grow through this trial. Difficult trials and sufferings can facilitate the growth of the soul. In the West, there is a widespread feeling that this is masochism, that if we highly value suffering, this is masochism. On the contrary, it is significant bravery when we respect suffering and understand what burdens it places on our soul. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it, on the one hand, it's easy to understand why Solzhenitsyn was so regularly blasted by critics because, you know, here comes a guy in 1978, he's standing before the future leaders of the world. And he's saying like, you guys are kind of becoming the problem here. And here's all the ways that that's happening. And then Mm -hmm. he says here that, you know, comfort and 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 having is actually detrimental to the soul but he's you know there's so much there's so much christian truth in that passage that i just read without a single allusion to scripture or a single mention of christ or the saints or anybody and that's a very that's a very tolkien way of doing things right that's a very lewis way of doing things they didn't well lewis lewis was more overt but they both used narrative uh in particular as a means of conveying these profound christian truths yeah yeah the uh that's yeah that's such a such a wonderful passage and it's significant i think you know as as pierce says you know his eyes widen in surprise you know yeah oh yes you know he knows this uh Mm -hmm. Solzhenitsyn was indeed, as his title says, a kindred spirit with many of these people, and he knew their work. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and that's why he shares, I mean, such such a deep, uh, he's such a kindred spirit to all Christians, I think. Yeah. And why, you know, a guy like Ed Erickson, who had been uh, raised in a kind of fundamentalist house, and kind of moved his way into the to the Calvinist tradition, mm-hmm. identified with him as as a kind of uh, serious Christian witness in a world in w- which that's not not very likely. Yeah. Um, and his his you know I think you know one of the histories of the you know to think about is that Solzhenitsyn was a kind of household name in the late sixties and the early seventies. Yeah. Um, but when he was expelled, and then he began to speak more openly making criticisms of the U S at the, 
in the Harvard address, but also in addresses that he gave, you know, to the AFL CIO and, yeah. to, you know, to other groups that invited him, uh, he became a kind of, he became a kind of persona non grata for the American press who were happy to have a kind of, you know, inspiring story of somebody sticking it to the man in a foreign place, mm-hmm. but we're not happy to have him doing it here. And particularly to blast things that they thought were just fine and dandy, like the, you know, the advanced levels of American comfort that we have. Yeah. Uh, but he, he was smart. He knew that he knew that comfort did, did weaken creatures. Um, and it's, you know, I, everything that he said in 1978 is so much more true today mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, you can't, you can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wasn't able to find my my worn out copy of the Harvard address uh, for this interview, but it's, you know, it's marked up and highlighted all to hell with just margin notes and everything. But, you know, so many, you know, he, he goes off on the media, he goes off on materialism in the West, you know, he goes so far as to say, like, maybe the most scathing insult in that entire address is when he says something to the effect of of you know people in russia they're they're waiting in bread lines but they are more spiritually strong than than the average westerner it's like dang that like they're supposed to be our enemies and here you are saying that they're stronger than us are you some kind of commie it's like no the truth is seldom pleasant it's almost invariably bitter um what so in your essay i want i want to i want to transition a bit to your essay because again there's so much here that i want to cover um life liberty and the pursuit of happiness in solzhenitsyn is your essay and what tell me about solzhenitsyn and happiness because he you hear happiness and you think one thing but Solzhenitsyn probably had a different view of things. Yeah, I mean, we we think of happiness uh, obviously as uh, you know the sine qua non of of life, and in one sense it is. And Solzhenitsyn would not disagree with that. Mm-hmm. But what he saw in in modern Western life, and it, what and what he saw that connected it to the Soviet life, he thought that all of our problems were connected. Mm-hmm. Was this atheistic materialism? Um, and if you don't have a God who provides a sort of definition of, of what kind of creature you are and what your goal is, and you don't believe that there's anything more to what we are than the material, then your, your aim at happiness will be something that is purely this world. Um, and it will, and it will have no limits on it in terms of moral limits. So when Solzhenitsyn would would bash happiness, which he did regularly, um, or the pursuit of happiness, saying it's kind of a foolish ideal, mm-hmm. what he wasn't re- what he wasn't referring to was the kind of happiness that uh, you know you find in the Psalms, happy the man you know who walks in the way of the Lord. What he's bashing is that notion that we can be happy merely by uh, material goods, uh, by by success. And we can be happy in a way uh, that is only uh, only within the ambits of that sort of materialist vision and has no moral limits on it. Yeah. Um, for him, happiness was only happiness 
if it was if it was under God and within the within the limits of the natural law. Yeah. Yeah. What did I'm going to I'm going to ask you to put on your Solzhenitsyn hat here. And and I think you have an answer for this because I can think of somewhere where Solzhenitsyn spoke directly to this. What would Solzhenitsyn say is the purpose of life or the meaning of life? Like, what would he say we're here for? Yeah, I mean, well, he says it in different ways, but he'll talk about it as as heroism, uh, oh. that we are meant to do great things. And by that, um, I don't think that he means, uh, again, sort of success in the eyes of the press or the public. But I think what he means is that uh, we are here uh, to live a life that ultimately, and again, he doesn't often use specifically direct language, but that glorifies God mm-hmm. by building up uh, our community, our family, and our nation, uh, and indeed the world, and shares the goods of the world. Yeah, um, a lot of people think you know thought of him as as sort of narrow because he's you know thought so much about Russia, mm-hmm. but. But he just understood that the way God put us on this earth was in particular communities and in particular nations. And that is where we we actually achieve our goals of a, a life that it shares uh, the wealth, both material and spiritual, yeah. uh, that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in your essay, um, Life, Liberty, and Pursuit of Happiness and Solzhenitsyn, you quote, uh, you quote something he said in the Templeton Address, which I'm, I'm going to read a bit here. Um, just want to make sure I read the right part. The primary key of our being and non-being resides in each individual human heart, in the heart's preference for specific good or evil. All attempts to find a way out of the plight of today's world are fruitless unless we redirect our consciousness in repentance to the creator of all. And I'm, I'm going to stop there for a moment. Like that's one of those kind of rare instances where he makes any sort of any sort of reference to to a creator or to God. So like that's that's about as on the head as Solzhenitsyn gets. But I'll I'll continue. Uh, Without this, no exit will be illumined, and we shall seek it in vain. The resources we have set aside for ourselves are too impoverished for this task. We must first recognize the horror perpetrated not by some outside force not by class or national enemies, but within each of us individually and within every society. This is especially true of a free and highly developed society, for here in particular, we have surely brought everything upon ourselves of our own free will. We ourselves, in our daily unthinking selfishness, are pulling tight that noose. (laughs) (laughs) He had a way with words, didn't he? Yeah, Uh, yeah. (laughs) But like that's, that is an echo of of this very famous quote uh, that that keeps popping up in in his work that the line dividing good and evil is not it, it cuts through every human heart. It's not mm-hmm. it's not some people are are inherently good, some people are inherently evil. We're all made of the same stuff. Yeah. How how did he come to that? Like how in your studies, how would you say that? thought was developed because it's it's true i think but it's also not something that i see too much of there we seem to want to view evil 
as exterior and something that we cannot possibly comprehend or fall into. But here's Solzhenitsyn saying that, no, I'm like, you're, you could easily fall into it. So where does that come from? I, well, I think it comes from his, his conversion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, within the camps and his realization that, that he himself had rejected God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that, that other people had sort of taken it away from, I mean, clearly he had, clearly, as you mentioned, you know, I mean, he can be very har- harsh on American media and politicians and all of these business people and all of this sort of thing, yeah. just as he was harsh with all of those characters in his own home country. But he, I think he understood when he, when he converted or re, you know, kind of came back to his faith in the camps that he himself had gone in directions that he now thought were wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a marvelous passage in the Gulag Archipelago where he reflects on his own um, arrest and mm-hmm. how, you know, he was, since he was a captain, this highly decorated captain, he was arrested and he, he made somebody else who was being arrested carry his stuff. And And he looks back on that and thinks, you know, I thought that I was somehow different because of who I was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that that I was just like all of these other people. Um, and he expands that, you know, for it going on through the volumes where he, he often stops to reflect that he could have been just like the interrogators. He mm-hmm. could have been just he could have been just like the the, uh, the people there. And not only could he have been, but he had it within him. Right. That whole line between good and evil is not just sort of a, a, a marvelous literary metaphor, but he really felt he really felt that tug within himself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I I mean, I think it's somebody who has. Uh, I think it's it's his conversion, but it's also somebody who pays attention very carefully, and mm-hmm. perhaps that's connected to the fact that he was a literary artist, that he was trying to look at the human condition and, and the world in which we live honestly yeah. and an honest look. Uh, you know, makes it out such that it's not just white hats and black hats, but it's it's a lot of people who are who are under a struggle. Yeah. Have you ever read? Um, I forget the author, but the name of the book is Ordinary Men. I don't think so. So Ordinary Men. Uh, again, I can't remember the author, but it's it's a study of a police battalion from uh, Nazi Germany, and this police battalion just started out as just like regular dudes ordinary men but they they were continually continually pushed and continually given these orders from above to do these terrible things to the point where these the same police battalion eventually went on to you know participate in the holocaust as it's typical as it's generally thought of but what's it's such a it's a very disturbing read because you read about these men and they're they're not sadists they're not masochists you know they're not sociopaths they didn't just yank them out of prison because they knew that they would do horrible things they were bakers they were they were just like townsfolk who were basically drafted and had no previous inclination towards evil much less being able to perpetuate or to per- participate in genocide and it follows it follows this this police battalion using historical records and all sorts of things 
seeing that like it started off with just them rounding up people just arresting people didn't really go beyond that then eventually it they turned into a firing squad you know they were they were rounding people up then they were marching people out to go dig their their own graves and then they were popping them in the back of the head they were rounding up i i i hate this example but they were rounding up pregnant women and executing them out in the woods like horrible things horrible things that that no person would like to think that they could possibly be capable of they want to think that that kind of evil is external and it's it's something entirely other but it doesn't seem to be and that's kind of what Solzhenitsyn is saying here right like you're you have it in you to be good you have it in you to be evil Mm -hmm. and that's that's a very humbling realization i would say the uh you know social needs and was also he loved chesterton as well Mm -hmm. and uh you know joseph pierce when he when he first got to do those interviews that was essentially how he he got he got the interviews was that he wrote a letter to social needs and said you know i'm I'm a writer and I've got, I've written a couple of books, including this biography of Chesterton mm-hmm. and uh social, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a serious, I think Catholic Christian, you know, and social needs and said, okay, you can come and, and, did, and do these interviews. And mm-hmm. when, when Pierce got to his, his place, he saw a whole bunch of Chesterton books on his shelves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether, I don't know whether he read all the father Brown mysteries, but of course, Chesterton's famous detective has this line, um, in in one of his one of his stories, uh, you know, where somebody asks Father Brown, you know, um, well, you know, how how could you know this or something like this? And and the 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 priest detective says, "I'm a man. I have every devil within me." Hmm. And that's you get that sense from Solzhenitsyn as he describes this that he he realizes that he too could have been a blue cap, you know, one of the yeah. ones who did this stuff, or I could have been, you know, one of these people. I mean, you know, thinking about it, I mean, even his time in, in the army, uh, when he wrote about it and his, uh, you know, we have a chapter in here by Micah Maddox on Prussian Knights, a sort of mm-hmm. long poem about military service. He also saw a lot of atrocities committed by his fellow soldiers, yeah. uh, you know, in, in Germany. Uh, so, you know, I think I think that reflection on himself and on all the men that he knew, um, it was there. And and you, he has a he has a sympathy for all of them too. Mm-hmm. That I think you know that 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 comes from that. That he can describe even the even the most horrible people with, with a kind of sympathy, not a false sympathy or a glamorization, sure, but with a uh, but with a real sympathy for people who are under pressure. Uh, and you get that many times in his memoirs, you know, for people who are utterly loathsome characters. But he understands that many of them bowed to do bad things because they had been, you know, pressured into it and they were yeah. weak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that that's there seems to be a lot of that going around these days. It, it seems like, it, you know, Solzhenitsyn. uh in the Harvard address, when he's lambasting the media, he says something to the effect of, you know, these people, they're, these are the people who are responsible for crafting 
opinion, but who elected them? Yep. Like, <laughs> like what, what are their credentials to be telling us what and how we should think? And, you know, you read something like that and it's like, yeah, right on. And then you realize it was written 40 some odd years ago and it could have been written today, you yeah. know, for, for all the stuff we have going on with vaccine mandates and, and just everything. And we're, we're being asked to not being asked, we're being told to comply blindly or, right. or suffer the consequences for the common good. And, um, and so what do you think you asked in, in your essay, you asked uh, just kind of in an off, an offhand comment, what would Solzhenitsyn think about the culture of the smartphone? And I yeah. want to, I want to take it a step further because I wonder what he would think about that, about, you know, he was a man who was wanted by the KGB, and he was a man who had several uh, assassination attempts made on him, and and by God's grace, he survived all of them. So, you know, the fact that we're carrying around these, these basically these tracking devices, and our information is being sold to who knows who for what, who knows what purpose, what do you think Solzhenitsyn would say about the culture of the smartphone, but also what do you think he would say about 2020 and 2021 and yeah. January 6th and Trump and Biden and just all the, all the madness that is happening? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to say what he would have said about, you know, specific incidents, but sure. I think, you know, the main thing would have been something along the lines of, I told you so, uh, because, and, you know, because he, he noticed this in a lot of Americans was a kind of, well, it couldn't, you know, nothing like this could happen here and we would yeah. never. And, you know, and his point was that, well, people are people everywhere and mm -hmm. particularly people in the West have been formed by these materialist ideas uh, and this sort of godless approach uh, are going to be particularly vulnerable to a lot of the things uh, that we were vulnerable to. And you will see that it it was, you know, that anything that happened to us is possible to happen to you. Mm -hmm. May not be immediately, but uh, but I think he'd tell us that, you know, don't be surprised if, uh, you know, what just is at first very painful internally becomes actually out and out violence. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I think he would say, you know, you are at a very perilous place. But I think he would also say that to connect it to your first question, uh, that this is part of the problem that you have sold yourselves out uh, and, you know, you've given, you know, people talk, you know, he was, he was hunted by the KGB and they were always gathering information. on. We don't need to be hunted by anybody. We willingly give our information, <laughs> yeah. you know, on these, on these apps and on all these things. And we know that companies like Facebook or Meta or whatever it is now, yeah. uh, you know, that these people and Google sell all of our data and we willingly do it because of, you know, to connect it again to the earlier part, because of our, our love of comfort. Yeah. Uh, he himself, uh, when he came to the U S you know, I mean, he was grateful to have, you know, Readily, you know, readily available food and goods and things like that. Mm -hmm. But he did not. Uh, he did not have the TV. I think his his wife and children had a TV that they kept upstairs in a closet. That you know, if they needed to watch something, they could. Yeah. But he 
he wanted to he and he would not answer the phone all the time mm-hmm. and he had a you know he had a he had a building that he built outside of his home in cavendish vermont that did not have a phone in it at all mm-hmm. so that he could actually work because he he realized that the great weakness that you have um you know when you are a a, a creature of material comforts uh and distraction is that you can't concentrate on anything mm-hmm. And uh, he, he did not want any part of, of that sort of lack of concentration. He thought that the spiritual development was the key thing. Mm-hmm. And he says that in a number of these passages, that yeah. that's really what we're lacking. Nobody can be a hero if they do not have a spirit that's willing to undergo discomfort or work, work through difficult situations. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I, as we've been talking, I've been looking, there's, there's one quote from Solzhenitsyn in particular that I can never remember the exact wording nor exactly where it's found. I believe it came from his interview with Bernard Levin. And mm-hmm. I believe that you allude to it or maybe quote it outright in the S in your essay, but I can never, I, I, I'm, I'm having trouble finding it um, off the top of my head, but it's something to the effect of if, if the purpose of human life or happiness we he, man would not be made to die but the fact that the fact that death awaits us all tells us that there is something other than human happiness that is that is you know driving us and that we should be striving for i know i completely butchered it but that's kind of the yeah that's kind of the 30,000 foot view of it um what so what do you what do you think what do you think people, why do you think people need to know about Solzhenitsyn? Like, why is he an important figure? We, you know, we talked a lot about, about what he's done specifically, yeah. but kind of in more broad strokes, why is he so revered by the people like you and I and, and Dr. Wilson and others? Why is he so revered? What lessons do we have to learn from him? that that we're just choosing to forget yeah i well i think that you know to put it to put it to do a couple of broad things i mean for one like you know i said i i assigned him in a course on the search for happiness which mm-hmm. you know might seem odd considering what we've said about his sort of bashing the term but ultimately it he teaches us about what uh what this life should be like and mm-hmm. as we said he's not always specific about the theological goal, only in rare places does he sort of speak in a theological vein, but he at least tells us how we should approach that. And he he gives us the broad understanding of living under God and of developing our spirits, right? That there is something more to us than just a uh, concatenation of desires and impulses and things like, no, there's a there is a there is a real center to the human person yeah. that needs to be developed and needs to be needs to be honed and disciplined uh, and needs to be developed in order that we would actually live in this heroic vein. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know I think that it, in and of itself is you know is is something that we can take away and the, you know to add to the second part of it. Um, he teaches us about that because of the possibility of something like the gulag system uh, of tyranny, 
that if we do not develop our souls now, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll have them developed in a way that we, we perhaps don't like. Yeah. Um, which is why, which is why, you know, like I said, his, his conversion came because he met people like, like that Alyosha the Baptist, you know, his fictional character, but, you know, many of them named in, in the Gulag Archipelago. Mm-hmm. He met many of these people who did live according to something deeper than, than this life. They lived according to conscience yeah. and they were capable of, uh, of follow, not only recognizing that there is justice, but actually acting upon it and refusing to do certain things, yeah. uh, you know, refusing to be like the ordinary men you described in the, in that book. Right. Um, and that to him was always very impressive. He tells a story at one point of um, an older lady uh, who had been accused and brought in because she had uh, been hiding the metropolitan or, you know, some, some church figure. Mm-hmm. And it was an older lady and, and they were telling her, you know, well, you know, you'd better, you'd better tell us where he is or we, or we will, you know, we will torture you and kill you. Yeah. And uh, of course he says the response was, I know I have, I've talked with God about this and I know that I'm not going to live forever. And I know that I am doing what God wants me to do. And I will never tell you where this Bishop is. So yeah. you might as well just kill me now because I'll never do it. <laughs> you know, and he, you know, he describes her as a kind of, you know, 70 or 80 something woman. And he says, what was so astonishing about it was that uh, they were, in, they were so impressed by this that they just let her go. Um that doesn't always happen in the sure. stories. Many times the people are killed. Uh, but, but, you know, he's giving us those examples of people who, you know, put them in the system of tyranny and they will, they will, they will deal with it and they don't care whether they die. I mean, as Alyosha says in one day in the life, uh, or as I suppose Ivan Denisovich uh, says about Alyosha and his Baptist friends, you know, these, these, these crazy religious people, but, you know, they, the, the suffering goes off of them like water off a duck's back. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so, you know, so he points to that and, you know, it, you know, he does point kind of directly to the religious element in, you know, in cases like the ones that I've told, Sure. he doesn't preach at you, but what he does is he shows you what it is to be a real full human being. Hmm. Yeah. I I can't remember where I read it or who wrote it, but someone was writing about Solzhenitsyn. Maybe it was, gosh, I can't remember. It was probably something I read on the imaginative conservative. That was where I, that was, that was where I found Solzhenitsyn. That's where I found Joseph Pierce for that matter. And that was where my, my admiration for the man kind of flourished, but someone has pointed out at least once and likely often many times more that Solzhenitsyn that Solzhenitsyn ends on a always ends on a positive note and I had never I had never thought about it like that until I read that observation you know which it it sounds weird because again you know we've been talking about Solzhenitsyn and he's talking about you know how we ourselves are tightening tightening the noose around our neck and and you know we don't have the spiritual strength of soviet peasants waiting in breadlines not rosy language 
but he does always end on a positive note. I can't, I can't remember exactly how he ends um, the Templeton address, but you know, he, he's, he spends considerable time talking about like how, how the U S and Russia could easily annihilate mankind with their, with their nuclear stockpile. But then he ends it with just like a couple of lines at the end, something to the effect of, um, you know, like if we, if we just set our sights on something higher, then, you know, we can, we can attain to it as long as we can recognize it's something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, the Gulag archipelago, um, it is not an easy read. It is, it, it, it is from start to finish. It is a mental, emotional, and spiritual beatdown. But you track, you track through the book, and even while he is, even while he is, you know, stuck in prison and he is gasping for air, he is being purified. Like the 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 book is a, it's a journey through purgatory you could say because he comes out the other end of it better and he recognizes that he comes out the other end of it better and because that that was Solzhenitsyn's life you know mm-hmm. it was it was it was thinking back on what part he played in his circumstances what he can learn from that how he can get better um and that's always that's always stuck with me the 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 idea that you can be that you can be just grimly honest but that that grim honesty can can lead to something good and something mm-hmm. true and beautiful what do you think about that yeah i think i think that's exactly right i mean it's uh, you're you're right it's it's probably a counterintuitive observation but uh but Solzhenitsyn was, if not an optimist, he was a man of hope yes. who was always looking, looking ahead. And uh, I, I gave a talk last week to a group on Solzhenitsyn and, and loving one's country. And I, I spent mm. a bit of time talking about the fact that, you know, when, while he was here for 20 years, he was still he still loved Russia. Yeah. And as it became apparent that the, that the regime there, the Soviet regime was going to finally collapse and when it did, Solzhenitsyn was, you know, was disturbed by what happened afterwards. He, you know, calls it the, you know, the great catastrophe and other sorts of terms for what happened under under Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s. But but what he did was he kept writing things, uh, you know, he was evaluating the situation. He was preparing to come home and he was writing about how Russia could be rebuilt Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he started that in the mid 1970s, uh, you know, in a, a collection of essays that he edited and in which he had three essays um, from under the rubble. And then he did one called Rebuilding Russia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, you think about, you know, we don't think about those titles. Yeah. Uh, but they're all they're all positive in a way. Agree, yeah. As you say, absolutely honest. Mm-hmm. But they are all positive how do we build up something again? Yeah. And that's, that's where he goes in almost all of his works. And there's something almost buoyant about, uh, about him in even the, the, the toughest situations. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up from under the rubble um, because I, I read it a few years ago 
when I was on a real Solzhenitsyn kick and the, the essay that stood out the most to me, and I'm sure anyone who's read it, I'm sure that most people would say this. It was his essay, Repentance and Self-Limitation in the Life of Nations. Like that, that essay, that essay is something like just the title is enough to make you stop and scratch your head because repentance and self-limitation, like right there, who talks about either of those things? Right. And then he, and then he takes a step further in the life of nations. And, you know, he, 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 the first half of the essay, maybe the first two thirds of the essay, he's making the case for why and how a nation should repent. You know, his whole thesis is that if, if a person is called to repentance and if a nation is made up of individuals who are all called to repentance, then is it possible for a nation to repent of, yeah. of the evil that they bring into the world, just as a person should repent for the, the evil that they individually bring into the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Solzhenitsyn is one of those guys that I, even though he probably wouldn't have used Twitter, I wish that he had been around for Twitter because he's so eminently quotable. Just yeah. everything he writes just is tailor-made for, for like coffee mugs and tweets and other things. Um, like, <laughs> To the point that I, I can't even begin to, to talk about that essay. But what, like, just taking a little bit, I guess, of a, of a sidetrack here. What do you, th- I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, repentance and self-limitate. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I thought you were, obviously, because you wrote about Solzhenitsyn and you continue to. But also because you use some language about self-limitation in your essay. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So what do you think of that idea of, of both repentance and self-limitation uh, in the, in the framework of the national scale. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think more people are thinking about self-limitation mm-hmm. in the United States, particularly after the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, President Biden may have utterly botched our, our leaving Afghanistan, mm. but there were many people who said, you know, we didn't really accomplish much and he really screwed that up. Yeah. But we should have, we should, you know, we, we overextended ourselves and we, we needed to have a more judicious approach to the way in which we, we you know, we put our footprint around, around the, the planet. Yeah. Um, and so I think people are thinking a little bit more about the self-limitation aspect uh, and may, and, you know, perhaps we need to think, you know, think very clearly about it. Um yeah. Repentance is a harder one, I think, maybe, especially for Americans. Um, uh, you know, and I mean, you know, our current sort of divides on, on you know, so-called racial matters. Um, I say so-called because I often think they don't have so much to do with racist to certain political views. But yeah, uh, I, I mean, agree. I think everybody agrees that, yes, America does have a very, you know, we have some very dark elements in our history, yep. as does every nation. And I think most of us are willing to say that we are, you know, that we do repent, you know, on, you know, on behalf of our treatment of, of Native Americans and Black people and, you know, the Chinese and, you know, all, you know, yeah. all sorts of groups. Um, the question is uh, how to do that appropriately, that sort of national repentance without, as, you know, Solzhenitsyn says, I believe it's in that essay, without, um, you know, heaping all of the guilt of the earth on top of our heads. Yeah. Uh, in which case, 
you know, you're not, you're not capable of repenting if there's no, if, if, if you'll never have this load lifted from you by it because you'll never be able to act. Um, So I, you know, I think it's, I think those, those ideas are maybe coming around. And the the question is, how do we do that repentance and how do we do that self-limitation rightly? And then, you know, this is where Solzhenitsyn kind of throws things off for some people because, you know, he was, I mean, I think another reason why he was hated by the national press was he was a supporter of the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam. Yeah. Because he felt that that was an that was an intervention that was saving a small people from being gobbled up by by a form of communism. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, so how do we self limit? Clearly, he doesn't mean simply a kind of isolationism if he thinks that's right. Right. So the question then is, how do we do that? And and perhaps now is a propitious moment for that, mm-hmm. where people are thinking, well, how is it that our nation? you know, properly limits itself? Uh, How is it that we can properly repent without, you know, going, you know, without abasing ourselves improperly or creating new problems uh, by attempts to sort of right wrongs that we cannot right in any real sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, I think the issue both of repentance and self-limitation, I think it's always important, um, but particularly now. Um, I don't know, I don't know if you uh, read guys like Rod Dreher or not, um, but you know he's he's very uh, between the Benedict Option and Live Not by Lies, which is another Solzhenitsyn essay that we could easily right. talk for another hour about. Um, he's you know there's been this kind of Solzhenitsyn uh, resurgence of late between yeah. between the work of Rod Dreher and Jordan Peterson is a big fan of them. And, you know, they've kind of pushed them out into the public consciousness again for a new generation. Um, but, you know, Rod Dreher, he spent the summer in Hungary uh, on a fellowship. And so he got to do some really interesting reporting uh, from from Eastern Europe where where there is a very real culture war going on, not dissimilar to what's going on here. And it seems like, it seems like the American Imperium, uh, the American cultural Imperium is in the process of aggressive expansion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, it was earlier this year uh, I don't remember the exact occasion for it, but there was something that it was maybe a feast day. It was a, a, a Catholic feast day and the Roman, the U.S. embassy in, in Rome decided to fly the rainbow flag right on on this feast day or whatever it was. And it was like profoundly disrespectful. Um, yeah you know for their their host city and their host country and and all that so so this idea of self-limitation this idea of repenting for the evils that you bring into the world or just the strife that you create in the world it seems like it seems like the conversation is coming around at a good time because it seems also like we are we america in general like we are going out of our way to to create some kind of future that we have not thought all the way through you know there's um in Jurassic Park 
uh, the movie and the book, there's that great line that I find myself referencing weekly, it seems like. Um, they, they were so interested in whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should. That's right. Um, and, it, you know, it just seems like, it seems like now would be a good time for self-limitation and repentance because we don't know what these cultural things that we're doing, these cultural yeah. ideas that we're pushing we haven't thought some of us have but not all of us we haven't thought through what kind of world we're creating with it mm -hmm. the uh I mean, you know and this this comes back to the you know the personal element too i mean one of the things that dreyer and others who are in places like hungary or poland or some of these countries that are trying to sort of hold off the tide of as you call it you know the cultural imperium mm -hmm. you know one of the difficulties that they have is that all of the sludge that we have, you know, on our internet in terms of these sort of rancid ideologies and the pornography and the, these sorts of gender ideologies, mm -hmm. all of those things are, are, you know, coming over there. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, it, it, it makes us ask questions about, uh, about our culpability in this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, not, not just, are we producing good content to counter it, but, um, how to think about the role of technology and mm -hmm. particularly technology companies and other large corporations. Um, Solzhenitsyn was not an anti-capitalist in a simple sense, but he certainly did worry about uh, large, large power held by corporations that were not, uh, that did not have allegiance to and were not uh, not as easily controlled by nations and communities themselves. Yeah. And so he makes us ask hard questions about uh, how to think about these things in, in other than simply market logic, yeah. uh, because, you know, markets are wonderful and I'm a great defender of, of free and open markets, but uh, when they, when, you know, when they become controlled by large entities, they're no longer free. And when they are producing very bad things, they are not fulfilling their function either yeah. of, of providing for needs and legitimate ones. So, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard question that we need to ask ourselves. And it's, it, it, it you know, we have to think like Solzhenitsyn and, you know, in those great works like rebuilding Russia and from under the rubble and, and, uh, and, and all of the, the rest of those, we have to think again about how to rebuild our own country. Yeah, uh, and I find it fascinating that many of the people, you know, who are do who are doing a lot of this thinking, uh, you know, I think about a group uh, there in Texas in Dallas called New Founding, you know, the, in the title, hmm. uh, they're trying to to friends of mine, uh, Nate Fisher, a fellow Calvin alum, and uh, Matt Peterson, who's the vice president of the Claremont Institute, mm -hmm. they're trying to work to br bring connections to companies and customers and workers who do not want to be swallowed up by our own, <laughs> you know, by our own problems. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the fact that they think in those terms of a new founding, you know, very much, very similar to, 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 you know, to Solzhenitsyn's thinking about, you know, we have to rebuild yeah. and that that's really where we are. Uh, we may still have a lot of the goods, although, you know, thanks to some, you know, supply chain problems <laughs> and whatnot, we may not for very long. Sure. Uh, but but we really are realizing that our cultural walls and many of our political walls and uh, and our social walls have collapsed. Yeah. And we need 
we need to we need to think about how to rebuild Russia, uh, but not Russia, not just Russia. We yeah. need to think about how to rebuild America and Canada and and all of these other countries. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's we need to we need to start thinking about how we rebuild. Just kind of, and I know that this is the this is a phrase that you say it and you're immediately marked as racist or or xenophobic or whatever else but we need to start thinking about what we can do how we can begin to rebuild just the western ideal and what is that western ideal i was reading just this morning um on roger ayer's american conservative blog and he was talking about uh how he's beginning work on his next book uh which is gonna he says it's gonna be the the third part of the trilogy that he never intended to write. Um, so the Benedict option was about, um, was about the need to just kind of form communities of faith and just prepare for uh, a world that is going to be increasingly hostile to people of, of faith uh, in particular. Live Not By Lies was more specifically how we go about making for you know building up these communities the third book which doesn't have a title he says is going to be what we do to start rebuilding which again that reminds me of from under the rubble because that was from under the rubble was written before the fall of the soviet union and it was all about how to start building up after the fall of the soviet union um and so you know it's it's encouraging that there are some people who are already beginning to think about this and whether or not you necessarily agree with the approaches that they take, it's good that they're thinking about it because it's, it's one of those things you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to get the life insurance policy (laughs) after the person dies, right? Like you want it, you want to be prepared and hopefully you never have to use it. Um, Last question for you. In, in true Solzhenitsyn fashion, what are you optimistic about? What gives you hope? What kind of drives away some of the darkness that is all too easy to spot these days? Well, I mean, I, I, I think uh, Solzhenitsyn, you know, although, he, uh, although, as we said, he doesn't drive specifically at the theological, sure. um, it, it is faith. Uh, you know, and it's my Catholic Christian faith that gives me hope that there that there is an ultimate end to this, a telos, a goal to all of this. Um, what you know, but it can be very dark because there are so many problems, not only in nations and communities, but within the Catholic Church and with with you know with other Christian churches within the Orthodox churches. Yeah. Um, so it's not it's not a kind of triumphalism about Christianity or Catholicism. Uh, but it's the sense that we are looking toward God, first of all. Uh, but I think within that, I, you know, there is also the fact that there are people, uh, you know, I mean, in sort of Old Testament language, there's, you know, there's always that righteous, you know, 7,000. Hmm. Um, and in a country of 330 million, maybe that's not enough, but, you know, we'll take it as a, as a, as a symbolic number. Sure. I, I think there are people out there who are thinking seriously uh, in the ways that people like Rod Dreher are about 
how to how to form communities that can defend against these encroachments. Yeah. Um, there are people out there who are being very uh, uh, very heroic about fighting uh, political battles yeah. in school board meetings and and elsewhere. We have on the national scene. We don't have a lot of great politicians, <laughs> but there are a couple, two or three, and there are many people who I think are, and I hope this is true, are thinking more in the vein of Solzhenitsyn about what can I do in my local community? Mm -hmm. Because if I can't solve all of the problems in Washington, um, you know, what can I do about uh, trying to, trying to beat back bad, (laughs) bad actions in my local city council. Right. Um, And and that can be depressing too. uh, But people are, I think, I think there are a lot of people who are thinking about that. There are people we're thinking about um, the religious side of things, and they're thinking about building up not only their own, not only their own communions, but also uh, building up their relationships with with other Christians and indeed, uh, you know, serious Jews as well. Yeah, and and that that gives me a lot of hope. Um, our our book had a lot of contributors, uh, most of whom I would say were Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, but a few people not, and yeah. uh, and that's. You know, that, that's a hopeful thing. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. So with that, David, I, I very much appreciate your time. I very much enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to have you on again to talk about Live Not By Lies and to talk about repentance and self-limitation. Yeah. Like there's just so many. Once you start falling down the Solzhenitsyn rabbit hole, you really want to hit every single ledge on the way down. Like it's just there's so much there. So I'd love to have you on again. Um, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on uh, a couple of things. I'm working on an essay for a book uh, that is about uh, thinking about how maybe some of the categories of Catholic social thought can help us think through some of our national difficulties. Interesting. Um, and then my bigger project I'm working on with a couple of former students is uh, a Newman project. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with his book, The Idea of a University, which yes. gives a kind of philosophy of a university, but doesn't give, you know, a lot of details about how you would do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we were talking about people starting new things, a lot of people are saying we need to start new institutions. Yeah. The other day at the announcement of a, a new university yeah. in Austin, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, so uh, so students and I are putting, former students and I are, are putting together uh, a collection of Newman's uh, writings on the specifics. Hmm. Uh, and we hope to call it the practice of a university to show that <laughs> Newman had ideas about, you know, how these things would go. Yeah. Uh, uh, because as we rebuild, uh, particularly in education, we need, to, we need to rethink things from the ground up. So yeah. that sounds as a, as a great admirer of Newman and as a, as someone who benefited so much from the idea of the university, um, I'm really excited to see what comes of the practice of the university. Um, that's, I want to, I want to stay updated on that. Um, where can people find you? Uh, I am, I'm not a big uh, social media person, but Good. I am on, uh, <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn and uh, you can, you can search for me by my name. Uh, I'm, at the imaginative conservative, which you read. And, uh, uh, I, so you can find a lot of pieces by me there. And then yeah. you can find me at my work, stthomas.edu, S-T-T-H-O-M-A-S.edu. And you can look for my journal logos, 
a journal of Catholic thought and culture and the work of the Murphy Institute for Catholic thought, law and public policy. Fantastic. David, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. It's been my pleasure.